Now, tonight, we return to our four-part series on the perfections of Scripture. If you weren't here previously, we have been seeing these aspects, these attributes of God's Word, and we've seen already the authority of Scripture, and then we saw the necessity of Scripture, and tonight we come to what we call the doctrine of clarity, the clarity of Scripture. Our main passage that we're going to be working from as we consider this in Joshua chapter 1 is situated historically right as Israel is about to enter into the promised land. And Moses has passed away and God gives instructions to Joshua that are extremely important for himself and for the Israelites. If they do the things they're about to hear, God promises blessing. If they do not do the things that they're about to be commanded, there will be all kinds of terrible consequences. And so, of course, it's imperative, it's important that they can actually understand what God is calling them to do, that there's sufficient clarity. And we're going to take up right at verse 1 and read through down to verse 9, but our focus is going to be especially on verse 8. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have not I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask tonight that you would show forth the fact that the scriptures are sufficiently clear for us to understand and to believe and to obey all that you call us to. We ask that you would do so for the glory of Christ and for our good, and for the welfare of your mission in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. More than a few books and movies have shared the same basic premise, where the fate of a person, the life of a city, the well-being of an entire planet, hinges upon something that seems beyond their control. Often the plot point is that it's some kind of ancient relic, maybe a book, and it's written in some indecipherable code, and everyone spends 90 minutes of the movie just trying to figure out, what does it say so that we can save the world? 
Or maybe it's a person just trying to save himself and interpret this impossible to understand thing. That is fiction in those movies and books. But here in scripture, we find that is exactly the situation that Joshua would have been in if the book of the law being referenced here was not clear. God tells Joshua, obey the book of the law. Do what is in it. Meditate on it day and night, and you'll prosper. And if you don't, there are all kinds of curses associated with the old covenant. While they're under the old covenant, as they're in that promised land, if they violate the covenant as a nation, they risk expulsion from the land. If the scriptures had not been sufficiently clear, then the very act of giving them the scriptures would itself have been a curse, not a blessing. What we're going to see tonight, however, is that scripture is clear. It is sufficient in what God sets out to do. As J.I. Packer summarized it, God has revealed himself in such a way as to be understood, believed, and obeyed. He knows how to speak. He invented your tongue. And he knows how to talk to people. Now we're going to see that doesn't mean that clarity is everything sometimes we hope it is. But it is sufficient for you to be courageous Christians. For you to say, if God has drawn a line somewhere, then I take my stand on the right side of that line. You can be courageous because it's clear enough. If it wasn't clear, you would always be waffling, wondering, I don't, I don't know what God wants of me. And so tonight, the Lord may help you. That's our prayer, that the Holy Spirit is going to help us to embrace the clarity of Scripture so that you live even more courageous Christian lives than perhaps you have yet done so. Now, as we consider this doctrine, we're going to weigh it under three main divisions. First, we're going to see what it is not. And that's especially angled at some of our younger members here. Maybe struggle with wondering why the Bible is not as clear as you hope. We're going to see what clarity is not, but then we're going to see what clarity is. What is this doctrine? And then finally, by way of conclusion, we're going to look at some of the implications and the applications. What do you do with this? How does this really shape your Christian life and witness? Now, I do want to acknowledge from the outset, it is not all clear to me. Seminary has not made all of the Bible clear to me. I remember the first Bible I ever had. I wasn't raised at first in a Christian home. And then, now my parents had divorced when I was very young. When I was 10, my mother mailed me a Bible. And she mailed me a King James Bible. And that was what I had. And I didn't know anything about it. So I just thought, like other books, you start at Genesis and you just begin reading. You can imagine the confusion, but mom sent it to me, so I'm going to read it. Reading through Leviticus with no flannel graphs, no background, and just... And yet I believed it was the Word of God. The Holy Spirit worked in that. From the first time I picked up a Bible, I remember being moved. There is somehow truth in this and being persuaded. And there were some parts that were very clear. The story of Gideon persuaded me. It was probably the the first verse that made me want to seek salvation. The story of Gideon and thinking, you don't mess with God. That was clear. Very clear. But then other parts I went, I don't know what this means at all. And maybe you feel that way sometimes, and you wonder, how do Christians say the Bible is clear when it doesn't feel that way to you? Or maybe you wonder, why are there so many disagreements between professing Christians and non-Christians about what the Bible says? If the Bible were clear, why are there a gazillion different Protestant branches? Although, by the way, if you explore Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodoxy as well, you'll find among a billion people, there are disagreements there too in how things are interpreted. 
So let's be very clear what the doctrine of clarity is not. And I speak especially to the younger members here. When we say that the Bible is clear, we do not mean that all passages are alike plain. There are going to be passages that you go, what does this mean? And sometimes that's because you don't have all the information you could have. The information's out there, you just don't have it yet. Or sometimes it's because it's not revealed yet how it's going to be worked out, say in the case of a prophecy. But if that's how you feel sometimes, that passages are not plain to you, you are not alone. There's a story in Acts chapter 8 where the Lord sends a man named Philip out into the desert to go speak with this eunuch who's traveling in a chariot. And Philip catches up with him, and the eunuch is reading a copy of the book of Isaiah. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading there? And the eunuch, his words are classic, he says, how can I possibly understand what I'm reading unless somebody explains this to me? He's midway in Isaiah, and there's a lot that you just cannot even begin to know if you don't know about Jesus yet, how these things are fulfilled. Similar, I started in Genesis. I didn't even know there was a Jesus. And so not all passages are equally plain then and throughout all of history. 1 Peter 1, verse 11, Peter says that the salvation that we now experience, even the prophets in the Old Testament were eagerly looking into to try to understand how it was going to come to pass. Even the prophets didn't understand all that they were prophesying, though they recorded what God revealed faithfully. And so there's that issue of prophetic visions. Then there are parables in the book of Proverbs. Understand, Jesus himself says regarding the parables that they are deliberately constructed to hide the truth from those who are indifferent to the truth, which means they require reflection. They require meditation. The same for Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of the kings to search out a matter. And God, as it says in Proverbs chapter 1, often cloaks his wisdom in riddles. And the very process of trying to crack that nut is itself an exercise that develops wisdom. Just this day, I was sitting on the patio with my sons eating shell peanuts, where you have to take, you know, waste a tremendous amount of time, but I find it pleasurable, uh, breaking apart the peanuts to get the peanut out. Other people just pay for that to be done. But one thought that went through my mind, my children are fairly young yet, and the very act of trying to open a peanut when you're three is good for your brain, not just your body, and good for your motor skills as you're trying to get it apart. Even so, when you come upon a passage of scripture that you don't get, that is good for you. That is not a reason to say, I shouldn't read the Bible, I don't get it. That's a reason to read the Bible so that you'll come to get it. When it's challenging, you crack the nut by God's help. But the scripture itself affirms that's true, especially the parables and Proverbs. And then you have the Pauline epistles. Have you ever read a portion of Romans or Galatians and went, I don't follow the reasoning, I don't get what he's doing here. It was said of John Owen, the famous Puritan divine, that he had the most brilliant mind and one of the most cursed tongues, and that he could not speak a sentence except that it be this long before he ever discovers a period. It would just be death by comma. And his mind could fathom that. It has nothing to do with Owen not being worthwhile reading. He's one of the most worthwhile of all the Puritans to read. But his genius showed no mercy to our lack thereof. He would just lay it out as he thought of it. 
And sometimes when you're reading Paul, and you are in the presence of someone who, by God's grace, is recognized throughout the world still, Christian and non-Christian alike, recognizing Paul an incredible genius. The Lord uses a Peter and he uses a Paul. Paul can be hard to follow linguistically. Peter himself, who's the humble fisherman, says in 2 Peter 3.16, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So not only is Paul writing in a difficult way, but your ignorance can be against you or your perversion, your desire for the text to mean other things than it really does. And so not all passages are alike plain, and on the other hand, not all doctrines are alike comprehensible. Not all things are equally understandable for all people or any people. The classic example, of course, is the doctrine of the Trinity. Or you take the doctrine of what we call the hypostatic union. union, union. It's this big phrase that means, and it's worthy of the echo, because it means the two natures of Christ are united forever with one person who is eternal. He is truly God, truly man. And if you ask me further to elaborate on that, I don't know how much further I can go. Why do I believe it? I believe that the Bible clearly reveals it is true, but that doesn't mean that we comprehend how all things work. The same goes for what we call theodicy. Theodicy is the question of how did a righteous being, an upright being, fall? Whether you're asking that about Satan or about human beings. I don't profess to comprehend it, but the Bible does teach that it happened. So when we say it's clear, we don't mean that it's exhaustive in explaining all the answers to the questions that we have. Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2 says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. You think, for a while the child is crying out, and then the child becomes calm. And there may be a period in your life where you're going, I I need the answer. How does this work? How does God elect some? And he didn't elect others, yet he still made them. And yet the scripture does declare what really you're struggling with in that instance. God is holy. God is good. God is just. And part of maturing is becoming weaned from the demand to have the answer you want in your time. It's not owing to a deficiency in the word. Likewise, you have the fact that people are blinded by sin. And that too makes it difficult to understand the word. 2 Corinthians 3 verses 14 through 16 speaks of unconverted Jews. Of course, Paul himself is a Jew. And it says, their minds were hardened For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, or they read the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. A veil is something that obscures sight. And in this case, it's not an intellectual issue. He says the veil is over their heart, not their mind, per se. It's not merely intellectual. But it has to do with the moral core of a person, the spiritual core of a person, to be resisting a righteousness that comes apart from your own works. So this is to say clarity as a doctrine is not that the Bible is easy. There are parts that are very, very hard. 
What then does this mean? I want to summarize the doctrine of clarity for you, and I'm going to say this probably twice in the next few minutes, because it is a lot. I'm trying to be clear, while at the same time I acknowledge that there's a lot here. Children especially, this is the doctrine of clarity. The doctrine of clarity is that Scripture, within Scripture as a whole, the Bible cover to cover, within Scripture as a whole, whatever God deems essential for faith and godliness, whatever God deems essential for faith and godliness, he has revealed sufficiently and in a plain enough way that ordinary people can understand it. If, and there is an if, if they apply themselves in faith and humility and diligence to the word. If they apply themselves. And that means that if you go searching in the Bible for two minutes and don't find an answer, that is not God's fault that he didn't make the Bible something like a, a, you know, a well-indexed book and you just turn to the solution you're looking for. I'll say it again. The doctrine of clarity is that within the Bible as a whole, God has revealed if, with sufficient clarity whatever he deems essential for faith and godliness if you apply yourself to it. Now, that in one sense is kind of like having a windshield and allowing it to become dirty. If you allow it to become dirty, that is not the windshield's fault, but your ability to navigate is going to be affected by that. There is a certain amount of responsibility that we must take. We take up and read, like Ezekiel is told to, eat the book. Take and eat the book. And it goes down into you and you digest it. It becomes a part of you. And that takes time. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And that word doesn't just fly into his stomach. He has to chew upon it. He has to digest it. He has to receive it day by day. In the case of Joshua here, he's told every day to meditate upon the word. And then Israel was required to talk about these things in their families on a day-to-day basis. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 6. We saw recently, once a year, they all had to stand and hear the entire beginning portion of the Old Testament. And so it takes time, but if we apply ourselves, it is clear enough for what God wants you to know. Now, historically, this doctrine has been challenged. It has been challenged in the past by what we now call the Roman Catholic Church. Over time, an opinion developed that the Bible was too difficult for ordinary people to read without harming themselves, which does not do justice to the way the Lord established the church that he made certain promises, that the Holy Spirit is active, that he provides teachers to assist, that we read together as a community, not just on our own. And it didn't help that over time, churches were prevented from having the Bible in their own tongue. Rather, throughout most of European history, what people had access to was the Latin Vulgate. And there's an irony here. Vulgate comes from vulgar, or it's related to the idea of vulgar, which means the common tongue. Was the Bible written in Latin? No. You have people in the early church who wanted the Bible to be accessible to those who spoke Latin, and so they translated it into Latin. But then over time, there came to be this, let's just leave it in Latin, let's not mess with this. And it was this thing meant to make the Bible accessible became inaccessible to anyone who didn't speak Latin as Europeans stopped speaking Latin as the Roman Empire wore away in the West. 
And so we made it even harder to understand the Bible, and it came to be that people relied upon a caste system of, you know, the priests, they know, and they can interpret it, and nobody else can. Historically, however, the church did affirm the clarity of Scripture. For the sake of time, I'm not going to quote a bunch of early church fathers. I will quote one, just as one example. Irenaeus, one of the most influential of all the early church fathers, lives in the second century, very early. He wrote a famous book, Against Heresies. Irenaeus is hugely significant in the church. I don't think ever once in my, all of my life I've heard anything poor said of Irenaeus in the way that sometimes you hear things poorly said about Augustine or someone else. Irenaeus has a basically impeachable record in terms of scholarship and as a Christian. And he writes, The entire scriptures, the prophets and the gospels, can be clearly, unambiguously, and harmoniously understood by all, although all do not believe them. Now, he doesn't mean that every single part of all of them is understood. He's saying the whole of the book, taken as a whole, is sufficiently clear that you know what God desires of you. You know who he is and what his will is for you. And even more importantly than the witness of the church is the witness of the Bible. Again, when God tells Joshua to do these things, he expects that it's clear. That's why he can say, have I not commanded you? Did I stutter? The Lord was perfectly clear with him about what was being demanded here. Likewise, David in Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Not an infrared light that is beyond the wavelength of your eyes to see. You know, some bee can see it. No, it is a lamp. And the whole point of that verse is to say it will guide your life if you only look at what it says. The excuse is not to be found in, oh, it's so difficult. Keep reading then. It's kind of like going on a long backpacking trip. There are going to be some parts that you struggle over. But then there are going to be flat and easy places. And if you're in a hard place, keep walking. Keep walking. And on a long journey, there are times where it goes dark. And then there are times when it finally becomes light again. And when you're in the darkness, you wait, it'll become light again. You'll get to the parts that you can understand. I experienced that this very last week. I read the book of Micah for the first time in a while. And reading through, there were quite a few things I did not understand. There was a portion about how the people of God would somehow have authority over the Assyrians. And I was trying to remember, is that historical? Is that typological? What is this about Assyrians? And eventually I just said, I don't have time to pull out all the commentaries. I'm just going to keep moving. And then I got to the last verses of Micah. Look them up yourself. Joy. The last words of Micah, the last maybe four verses. Pure delight. I won't even tell you. Find it for yourself. And be delighted because it will be clear where you need it. It is a light. Jesus, over and over in his arguments with the Pharisees, says, Have you not read what saith the scriptures? He doesn't appeal to just, I am God and I can tell you. Although sometimes he does. More often than not, he says, does not the scripture say? That presumes it's sufficiently clear to ordinary people. Paul to Timothy says, the scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. And so the doctrine of clarity is simply that within scripture as a whole, whatever is essential is clear enough for you. Clear enough for faith and for godliness. How then do we live out of this? I want to lay before you by way of conclusion three ways that we live out of this. The first, take heart. 
Because the God who has spoken has deliberately spoken so as to be understood by you. He's not trying to trick you. Yes, there are some parts that are harder for you and maybe harder for everybody, but that doesn't mean it's a trick. And those harder parts, again, are beneficial in their own way. You don't know God's whole plot. Some of the things that were difficult were deliberately difficult so that Christ's life would unfold the way that it did. We should not presume against God, but we should take heart and say, he has spoken in such a way that he wants me to know. What does it sound like to hear the voice of God? Some people long to hear them. Some people claim to have heard the voice of God. I can't comment on what they heard or did not hear, but I can say that I have heard the voice of God. It sounds like whatever the text says and means. And you are to, by faith, believe that really is God speaking from outside of time and space into our world. He's speaking to you. If he says X, Y, Z, that is him speaking. It's not just an intellectual act. In real time, the Holy Spirit takes and applies the word to you. And so God has shown us mercy in this way. Louis Burkhoff, who's one of the great reformed minds of the 20th century, wrote a a fantastic, it's kind of the gold standard of pure vanilla systematic theologies. It's not the most exciting in terms of its writing style, but if there's one that I'd say, if, if you're in your early 20s and you have a hankering to go a little deeper, Louis Burkhoff's systematic is excellent just because it doesn't have a lot of the strange excesses that sometimes occur with people of broad thought, thought about a lot of things. And in it, he makes this point. It's very encouraging. He says, in opposition to Rome, the reformers further defended the clearness of the Bible. They didn't deny that it contains mysteries too deep for human understanding, but simply contended that the knowledge necessary unto salvation, though not equally clear on every page of the Bible, is yet conveyed in a manner so simple that anyone earnestly seeking salvation can easily gather this knowledge for himself and not depend on the interpretation of the church or a priesthood. I want to be clear, God has ordained that there would be offices in the church, that there would be pastors. He's appointed by the Holy Spirit that some people have special gifts of teaching. But that doesn't make the, your salvation is hinging on that. All who have access to the word, if they are diligent and humble and seek to know, it's sufficiently clear. So this is not, uh, sometimes the doctrine of sola scriptura gets twisted to mean just me and my Bible. We read the scriptures with the church, but they are sufficiently clear. What we gain from reading with the church is that it guards us from some of the excesses of our own ignorance, or the excesses of our opinions. And so we give thanks in the first place. Take heart, God has chosen to speak to you. There's not a person in this room who can understand the words that I'm saying right now who does not, by your very understanding, prove that you are sufficiently understanding yourself to grasp what God would say in the word. But then, if that's the case, take heed. Take heed how you handle and respond to the word. Because you will be accountable. If God will require an account of us for even the most idle of words, as the scripture says, How much more will he require an account for what we did with each of his words? And so we're to take heed in that. Augustine makes this comment in his book on Christian doctrine. The Holy Spirit, therefore, has generously planned Holy Scripture in such a way that in the easier passages he relieves our hunger, but in the more obscure ones he drives away your pride. 
Practically nothing is dug out from those obscure texts which cannot be discovered to be said very plainly in some other place. The great mind, Augustine, says, look, even the hard parts aren't saying something fundamentally different. There is no esoteric knowledge, some Gnostic secret that an inner circle has. There's just more of the same levels of richness, but essentially the same picture. It's like having a flip book where it starts out as a very, very basic picture of Jesus, and the further you flip into it, more and more you say he's beautiful. But he gives it to us in the form of words rather than images. And these words, more and more as you grow in it, you discover what Christ looks like, what his heart is. And therefore, you have to apply yourself with diligence. We are diligent to eat because we have a hunger and it drives us. I encourage you, ask the Lord to give you a hunger for the word that drives you to be diligent in your study. The Bereans were called more noble for they searched the scriptures daily. Finally, take courage. God has spoken sufficiently clearly that you should not worry that other people disagree with the Bible. And that is the world we live in. The Bible calls you to do things that are going to be opposed, to believe things that are going to be disagreed with. Take courage. Does he not promise? Where he says in verse 9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. and Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The things that Joshua and Israel had to do were definitely going to be opposed. The things you are called to will not be easy either. But you can be courageous that God will bless it. Let's ask him to do that even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures and we thank you that you speak to us in them. From time to time, your spirit causes the words to register so deeply that we wish to shout with joy or to cry out in sincere contrition and remorse over our sin. At other times, you fill us with a sense of purpose. We ask that you would please Give us the endurance, the stamina, the stick to to keep on our way through the scriptures, to avail ourselves of the helps that you provide, and to trust in your time you will enrich us, you will prosper us and bless us. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.